There was a paper boy on the strip. That was part of Flint that was between Hemphill and Atherton Roads, directly across from the historic Fisher Body Automobile Factory. The strip was where the 1937 sit-down strike occurred on the street and the sidewalks. There were a National Guard. There were people who gathered around to support the the sit-down strikers inside the factory. And they took a stand against the world's most powerful corporation at the time, General Motors. The workers won. They won the right to bargain collectively with GM. They won the right to have their union recognized as their negotiating agent. And it changed America. I was a paper boy on that strip. The strip was full of cars and bars, rock and roll bands once in a while. Of course, all us kids were Tiger fans. But as a paper boy, nobody knows what to expect when a front door opened either in the strip or in my neighborhood. I was always finished my paper route on the strip at George's restaurant. That was the street where Fisher Body Number One was located. There was a dry cleaner at several bars, the Union Hall, a gambling joint, etc. That strip was where the action was on most days. It was a piece of the neighborhood real estate that I learned many lessons about life. My first memories of that strip were at the Lucky Eleven bar on Halloween when I went trick-or-treating dressed as a football player and some guy whacked me on the head on my helmet with a pool cue. Just a little kid asking for a treat and he whacks me in the head when I'm inside that bar. That taught me that bar was not a place I needed to be. But my goal was to be self-reliant and earn money for myself. So in my neighborhood, it required a certain bravery. In the book, Watership Down by Richard Adams, it speaks of fear and risks and what matters in life. Adams' theory says, Bravery isn't always the lack of fear. Sometimes it's accumulation, a small risk you take every day just to survive. To live is to be courageous. To believe in yourself is bold. Your willingness to confront danger despite your fears in a world that seems to be forever against you is all that matters. That was me. It was a late afternoon on a warm August day. When I walked into the front door of the Greasy Spoon restaurant directly across the street from Fisher Body Number One, a rotund woman greeted me with a smile from behind the counter. We called her Twiggy. Her face was red from the heat. Her hair was tied back. I had on my long pants and t-shirt, and of course, my Detroit Tiger plastic batting helmet that I got at a game as a souvenir. We called this time of year the dog days of summer. This was the last stop on my newspaper route. I was just 14 years old at the time. Twiggy treated my friends and myself like we were her sons. I handed her the Flint Journal and said, there's only good news today, Twiggy. The Detroit Tigers had won the previous night and no one was killed in Flint today. 
I usually ignored the body counts from Vietnam. Every day I delivered that grim news to the doorsteps of my neighbors in the Dixieland subdivision. Twiggy asked if I wanted my usual, lemon meringue pie and a Coke, or do I want something to eat? She seemed to make a distinction between real food and dessert. I was too hot to eat, so I ordered up my usual fare. It was 1968 in America. Detroit had just burned down from the riots. The political leaders were assassinated, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. Even the Chicago police decided to riot that summer during the Democratic National Convention. I watched that on television as a teenager in disbelief. Some news was good. The factory was cranking around the clock, cranking out new Buicks. It seemed like dramatic change and conflict was everywhere with our country being so divided. George Wallace was running for president on the American Independent ticket. The Detroit Tigers were in a pennant race in the American League and eventually won the World Series. I grabbed a seat at the counter and devoured my pie and drank a glass of ice water while exchanging banter with Twiggy. I then ambled over to the pinball machine. My best friends also delivered newspapers on a nearby route and usually met uh, with me at the end of our deliveries to play pinball. It wasn't the pie or Twiggy that was the main draw, it was the pinball game. We were always a few quarters short of having enough to play as much as we wanted. So one day we discovered if we lifted up the pinball machine and put our wallets under the legs, the pinball would roll slower and we could score more points and then rack up complimentary games. Good stuff. We had to wait until Pig, Twiggy and George, the owner of George's restaurant, was not paying much attention to us kids in order to do our magic with the pinball machine. The allure of George's restaurant, for me anyway, was the pinball machine, the meringue pie, and meeting up with my buddies exactly in that order. In those days, the law prohibited kids under the age of 18 to play pinball. Twiggy, George, and my mom, they didn't seem to care if I played pinball, but for some reason, the cops did. George's restaurant was not your ordinary factory grill. Big George, as he was known on the street, was a bookie. He ran a gambling house under the guise of a simple everyday hamburger joint. At the time, I did not exactly understand how playing the numbers worked. Numbers is basically an illegal lottery run by a bookie like Big George. It wasn't until many years later that I became the prosecuting attorney and my dear friend Joe Wilson, the county sheriff, explained who Big George was and what his occupation had been through the years in the Flint area. Big George, by the way, had a numbers joint that was infamous over by the Buick Motor Car Company factory, humongous place, uh, where uh, lots of excitement occurred, and I think Big George thought moving to the South End might be a little quieter place to play cards. As long as us kids were quiet and didn't cause any trouble, 
Big George and Twiggy were happy to have us around. Behind the pinball machine was a wall with a doorway that was always open, and there was a large room there with men gathered at a big table. Most of the time they were just talking and drinking and playing card games back there. Because I was so focused on pinball, I never paid much attention to what they were doing in this place. It was hard to ignore the cigarettes and cigar smoke. Because I went to this place so often, the faces of the gamblers are very familiar. My first friend on the planet was Mark McAuliffe and a neighbor, Barry Henderson. They finally showed up together. The pinball machine was heavy and it took three guys to lift it up and put our wallets under the legs. We happily rang up the scores and racked up a bunch of free games. While we were ringing up the games, to our surprise, a pair of Flint cops walked in the front door of the restaurant. They approached us and wanted to see our identification. I didn't have a driver's license and wasn't seen pl playing at the time, so I knew I wasn't getting in any trouble. I wasn't old enough to drive. Barry sheepishly looked at the cop and said to him, he would get his ID for the police officer if only he would help him lift up the machine so he could get his wallet from underneath the legs. My experience with the Flint police was that they were busy and they didn't have any time to listen to kids. Mom always told me when the cops come to the house or wherever, I was just to keep my mouth shut. I followed her advice that day. As you might have guessed, that ended pinball for that afternoon. We would definitely return. The cops told us that we were not old enough to play pinball and to get out of there. We moved along and walked home. Later that fall, I was riding my gold Stingray bike pedaling papers with my dog following. It was early in the morning, sometimes around 6.30 a.m., and it started drizzling rain. I was on the strip and all the businesses were closed, unlike the houses in the neighborhood. The businesses along the strip, they didn't have awnings to protect the newspaper from rain. I then arrived at Marge's bar and wheeled into its covered entrance, one of the few on the strip, and started to put the newspaper in the door handle to protect it from rain. My dog Snowball, an American Eskimo, was by my side. I noticed something didn't look normal inside the bar. The lights were dim inside. Just as I started to survey the inside of the bar through the glass door, my dog started barking. At that moment, I saw an older man with short gray hair and a mustache and a round wire grandpa eyeglasses. He looked like the weavers on a television set. My dad was listening to hillbilly music. He seemed surprised I was at the door. He then began crouching behind the bar. My fight or flight reaction kicked in instantly. My heart was pounding hard and I stared at that creepy man intently. My dog was barking louder. The man then raised up and I could see a sawed off shotgun in his hands. He pointed and leveled the gun at me, using the bar counter as his cover. 
I felt completely as if things were in slow motion at that point. Fortunately, I chose the fight option rather than the fight alternative sounding in my head. I immediately wheeled my bike around, dropping my canvas flint journal carrier bag and rode as fast as my legs could pump. Home was just three blocks away with just one hill to climb. I even beat my dog home. Once inside, I went to my bedroom and climbed to my bed, putting the covers over my head as if I were hiding. I was scared to death. I started thinking about mom and the murder at Charlie's drugstore. My mom and dad were not home. My heart was still racing. I called the police and told them my story. I related, the bar got robbed. I provided the police with the exact time, 6.40 a.m. The lady on the phone said the police would make contact later. They never did. I was so scared about what happened that I decided to skip school that day. When mom arrived home at 3 p.m. after work, I told her what happened on the strip. She called the Flint police and confirmed that someone broke in and entered Marge's bar on South Saginaw Street. They stole money from its safe. The electricity was cut off at the bar around 6.30 a.m., causing the clock on the wall to stop. The police had no suspects in, in connection to this crime. It was important for me to share the news of what happened at Marge's bar with the neighborhood gang, as we all called ourselves. We weren't a real gang. We just hung out with each other every day. We were like family. We were loyal to one another. That was our way of having protection, especially when traveling on the Strip. In those days, we only had BB guns and not real guns. And BB guns were used only to shoot at cans, consumer power insulators, and pie tins by the railroad tracks. Mom hated guns. She wouldn't buy me a BB gun. That left me sharing BB guns with my best friend Mark and his brother Danny. Us kids knew every hiding place and every escape in our neighborhood. We were also familiar with most of the people we encountered every day along the strip. Our gang played war and capture the flag and other games which used the whole neighborhood as our playing field. Seems looking back at it now, we were watching the Vietnam War every night with people crawling into tunnels and so forth and uh, we were just mimicking what we saw on TV, but we were making the battlefield our neighborhood. It was a few weeks later, sometime in October, when I was at George's restaurant, of course, playing pinball again. My attention was drawn to the smoke-filled back room where the men were playing cards. There was an unusually large gathering. I overheard one of the men saying something about us kids. It seemed like they wanted Big George to kick us out of the place. There was no way George was going was gonna to do something like that. After all, I was his paper boy. I looked more carefully surveying these men's faces. My best friend, the, the fight or flight thing, kicked in again. I froze. Just a few feet away from me sat the man who robbed Marge's bar. He was the man with the grandpa glasses who pointed a sawed-off shotgun at me. No one had ever pointed a gun at me, so it was easy not to forget that fact. I will never forget that man's face. I pointed out the creepy old man to my friends. 
they started talking about what to do to teach him a lesson. The lesson was going to be not mess with neighborhood kids again. In those days, revenge wasn't so much about getting even as it was about teaching lessons. We ticked off the options. First possibility was jumping him in the dark alley behind George's restaurant. The cops didn't seem very interested in finding him for his criminal behavior, so we felt a need to protect the neighborhood from a gun-toting criminal. I told my friends that if we jump on him, that George would get upset and that we would be, that would be the end of our pinball and our pie. That old guy was lucky. We had our priorities in the right place. Mulling it over some more, we figured that just letting the air out of his tires while he was gambling inside would be a good first step. There were other options for teaching him not to mess with us kids, but in the end, I came up with the best option. I convinced my friend that the best option was to let Big George help out. So right then I told Big George that we are afraid of that creepy old guy and a grandpa glasses. He was staring at me like he and I were Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston. My intuition was that old guy knew I was the person, the one person, who could get him sent to prison for what he had done down down the strip at Marge's. Not knowing at the time that George was a felon and an organized crime figure, I told him my story. With his big navy tattoo on his forearm, I trusted him to understand the situation in the fewest words necessary. I made it very clear to George that the old man had to go. Not completely understanding George's business model, I admired how he handled this small problem. His number one goal was not to draw attention to his gambling joint or himself. Therefore, since we are not moving out of the neighborhood, the old man would have to find another place to lose his money. George talked to the guy and he left immediately. The new rule was that if the kids were there, then he was not to enter the building. For good measure, we decided to take a look at what kind of car he drove. So we waved goodbye as he left the alley behind George's place. I'm sure that old man didn't understand that our neighborhood wasn't just any neighborhood. We were a bunch of white trash hillbillies who were polite, nice looking boys, and very streetwise. Loyalty to one another was the way we survived in that environment. The old man's gambling habit couldn't keep him away, however. He had to come back to George's one last time. We discovered his car parked behind George's place. Then the question was, do we write him a note to tell him never come back again? It was personally delivered. Our method of communicating was highly effective. I never saw that creepy old man again. Just to assure you, we were not reading stories of nonviolence by Gandhi or Martin Luther King. Our unspoken neighborhood rule was better to live to fight another day. That means we didn't fight people to settle scores. There were a million better ways to get our point across. Violence always had the possibility that something could go very wrong. In many ways, our street learned survival skills that were beyond our years. Thank you.